Good morning, church. My name is Lynn. The Bible reading this morning is taken from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to verse 5. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 5. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is the word of the Lord. Why don't you bow with me as we come to God's word and ask his help. Heavenly Father, as always, we come to you uh, as spiritual paupers with nothing, uh, but your nature is always to have mercy. We praise you for that, and we pray that you would meet with us this morning. We pray that you would be present here by your Spirit, working in our hearts and minds, showing us, uh, showing us God the Father in the face of Jesus Christ, and reminding us of all your gifts to us. And especially this morning, the gift of the church. And so we pray that you will open our eyes to see your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is the church? That's an annoying question uh, for half past ten on a Sunday morning. But I put it to you, what is the church? And I presume, since you're all here, I presume you have an answer to that question. At least I hope so. There are many ways we can answer it, aren't there? So many ways. Church is a building. We're going to have our complex AGM at the old church on Plain Street. Church is a faith community, an active voice in civil society. Church is a mediating institution between the state and individuals. That's the answer you'll get if you ask the political scientists. Church is the place to meet a spouse. That might be more true of the evening service than it is here. But stranger things have happened. Church is an instrument of colonialism. That's a common understanding of church in our day and age. Church is a weekly gathering of people with high moral standards. Church is an organization and should be managed accordingly. Church is what Christians do. Church is where you get married or baptized or buried. What is church? So many ways we could answer that question. We could ask another related question. How would you start a church? What would you need? If I said to you, here's a starter pack for church, what would you expect to find in there? You need a pastor? Debatable. You need a place to meet? Depending on your style of church, you either need prayer cushions or a crazy sound system. You may or may not need Bibles. How would you start a church? What does it take? Those are good questions as we launch into another year together as a local church. And a good place to take those questions is the book of Acts. But before we go there with our questions, we need to have some background on Acts. We need to know what it is we're dealing with when we come to the book of Acts. So many of you will know, but, but many of you won't. 
Acts is the second volume of a single work written by Luke. We, we might call the whole thing Luke Acts. And it takes up a quarter of the New Testament. So it really is a significant portion of Scripture, Luke Acts. The first volume is Luke's Gospel. The second volume, Acts, was probably written in the late 80s, at a time when the church was under significant pressure, facing significant opposition, many critics in the culture, a time much like our own. And what do we know about the author? Well, we know from his style of writing that Luke was highly educated, just by looking at the, at the way he writes. Uh, so if you've ever received a WhatsApp from Pumlani Ngongo, you'll know how this works, right? This is the WhatsApp. There's a title. And then there's the main point. Uh, then there's a preamble. Then several subpoints. Qualifications for the subpoints. Conditions to the qualifications. Conclusion. Epilogue. That's the WhatsApp. Um, Pum, we love you. We love your WhatsApps. Someone has to raise the bar around here, so we're thankful for you. I have to say those things because he's my boss. Point being, you can tell something about someone by the way they write, by their style. And we can very quickly see when we read Luke, especially those who read him in the Greek, we can see that he was highly educated. He was a doctor, in fact. We know that from the New Testament. He was a colleague of the Apostle Paul, who's a central character in Acts. Uh, and all of this would have qualified Luke as, a, as an historian, which is what he set out to be. So just listen to the introduction of the Gospel of Luke. That's the first part in this two-part series that he wrote for us. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. Luke is an historian who has undertaken to draw up an orderly account of things, taken from eyewitness interviews and from careful investigation of the facts, going right back to the beginning. In fact, you may not know this about Luke, he actually spent two years in Palestine where everything played out. He was there for two years with not much to do. He was waiting for Paul to get a trial date. Paul's in prison in Caesarea. There's Luke in Palestine with not much to do. What did he do during that time? Well, it would make perfect sense of the facts if that was when he did some of his research. If he spent his time, those two years, waiting for a trial date, if he spent that time in careful historical investigation, interviewing the eyewitnesses. And that's what you want from an historian, isn't it? That sort of careful investigation. This is how one expert in ancient history from Oxford University has described Luke's work. Listen to what he writes. The historical framework is exact. In terms of time and place, the details are precise and correct. The confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its basic historicity, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. Ancient Roman historians have long taken it for granted. So Luke wrote a history. 
And he wrote it so that his readers might know the certainty of the things that they had been taught. He wrote it to encourage Christians in their faith. But he also wrote it to answer the critics of the Christian faith and to invite them into that same faith on the basis of the evidence, on the basis of the historical facts. Just uh, one more background issue we want to talk about, and that's the title, Acts. Why Acts? In ancient literature, Acts was a genre. It was a, a particular type of literature. So today we might have the romance novel, the fantasy series, the biography, the investigative journalism, and so on. Each one of those categories of literature has a formula that you have to abide by if you want to qualify as writing in that category of literature, in that genre. So to qualify as a romance novel, the story must have certain elements. Boy meets girl. They fall in love. Girl meets other boy. Conflict, crisis, explosion, reconciliation, happily ever after. It's a formula. You have to stick to the formula. The same was true of acts as an ancient genre. The primary purpose of an act was to narrate the history of a hero. So we have the acts of Alexander the Great, for instance. We have the acts of Augustus Caesar, and we have several others. Here's a question. Who's the hero in the Bible book of Acts, as Luke tells it? Who's the hero? Let's go back to our passage and look for an answer. So I'm going to read it again for us. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And look out for the hero. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Who's the hero of the story? Some of you are whispering it. It's God. The hero is God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three are mentioned in that passage. And that's what we're going to see time and time again as we work through the book of Acts. It's why we've titled this series, The Acts of God. Understanding who the hero is is also going to give us something of an answer to that original question that we asked. What is the church? The church may be many other things, but in its essence, the church is an act of God. What does it take to start a church? Short answer, an act of God. An act of God from start to finish. Let's look at how God prepared for the church, how he acts to prepare for the church. Uh, let's, we'll, we'll go to our passage and we'll, we'll see what he does to prepare for the church. Let's open the starter pack and see what's in there. So what do we see? We see Jesus. 
Many of you were whispering his name. We see Jesus. We see that Jesus chose. Jesus acted. Jesus taught. He suffered. He rose. He commanded. Just in those five verses, Jesus chose, acted, taught, suffered, rose, commanded. We'll take some time just to reflect on each one of those briefly. And then we're going to ask ourselves the question, so what does all of this mean for us as a local church? Number one, Jesus chose. Verse two mentions that Jesus chose his apostles. If we go to Luke 6 verse 12, we read that near the beginning of his ministry, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles. Jesus chose his apostles near the beginning of his ministry so that they could witness all that he would do and teach. They could be a witness of it all, eyewitnesses of it all from the very beginning. And these apostles would become the foundation of the church. The important thing for us to see is that Jesus chose them. They didn't apply for the job. They weren't elected by popular vote. They certainly weren't self-appointed. Jesus chose them in prayerful communion with his Father, in the power of the Spirit, Jesus chose his apostles. How many of today's apostles can claim the same thing? And of course they do. They claim divine appointment. But none of them were called by the incarnate Jesus to be eyewitnesses of his life, his death, and his resurrection. If they do claim that, it's a tough sell in 2022. That type of apostle is not what we need to start a church. We need the eyewitness testimony of the apostles that Jesus chose. And we have it in the New Testament. Number two, Jesus acted. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do. Jesus acted and to teach. So what did he do? Of course, you can read about that in Luke's gospel. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. He was a friend to sinners and outcasts. He rebuked the wind. He commanded the waves. He multiplied the bread. He spoke the truth to power in love. He did all this and he did so much more. And as he did, as he acted, he taught. Number three, Jesus taught. In a culture full of teachers, Jesus amazed the people with his teaching. He said things like, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Now that is profound just as a teaching, but as we've seen, as we've just seen, Jesus didn't just teach. He also acted. What he taught, he lived. You can't really see it in the English, but the doing and the teaching in Acts 1 verse 1 hold together tightly. John Calvin called that a holy knot. Jesus' doing and his teaching, he called it a holy knot. 
Because unlike any other human being who ever lived, there was no gap between what Jesus said and what he did. None. And that's why he and he alone was the precondition to the church. He said, love your enemies. And he did. All the way to the cross. Which leads us to number four. Jesus suffered. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says as much. Jesus suffered. As a wandering preacher who did what he said and said what he did, he was the only one of his kind. People were threatened by him. Of course they were, especially powerful people. He faced opposition on every side. He was isolated. He was rejected. He had nowhere to call home. And the opposition grew increasingly political. It ended in a conspiracy, a plot to kill him. And when the time came, his friends betrayed him. And then they abandoned him. He was falsely accused in a kangaroo court. He was beaten and flogged and mocked and spat on. And then he was executed in the cruelest death that imperial Rome could conjure. And they could conjure some cruelty. It was a death reserved for runaway slaves and traitors. He suffered all that. And then he suffered the judgment of God as darkness covered the land. Jesus suffered. He suffered. Why did he suffer? He told his disciples during his last Passover meal, this is my body given. Why? For what purpose? This is my body given for you. And then, as we read on in Luke's telling of the crucifixion, this theme of the innocent for the guilty runs all the way through. Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. But the people demanded Barabbas, the murderer, in his place. The guilty for the innocent. The criminal on the cross rebuked his colleague, saying, We are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. The innocent for the guilty. When Jesus died, the centurion at the foot of the cross praised God and cried out, Surely this man was innocent. The innocent for the guilty. Jesus suffered. The innocent for the guilty to set you free. That would be nothing more than a nice gesture if Jesus hadn't also risen from the dead. Number five, Jesus rose. Luke's close companion, the Apostle Paul, wrote this to the Corinthian church. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The resurrection of Jesus is the victory of God over sin, over death, over Satan. Without it, we have no hope. But with it, 
we have all hope because we have life. It's no wonder then that Acts chapter 1 verse 3, after his suffering, Jesus presented himself to his apostles and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. With so much hanging on the resurrection, Jesus wanted his apostles to have proof, evidence of life, proof of life. And as we'll see, being an eyewitness to the resurrection is a non-negotiable qualification for apostleship. And so Jesus showed himself to them. And since it was so obvious that the king lives, he also spoke to them about what it means to live in the kingdom over 40 days. Number six, Jesus commanded. This one's strange. Think about it with me. Jesus suffers the most heinous death. Then he rises from the dead in the most dramatic way. And as the risen king of the universe, he issues his first command. And his first command to his apostles is, wait. Of all the anticlimaxes that have ever been, this is the mother of them all. Wait. Hurry up and wait. It seems like such a nothing command. But actually, it has so much to teach us. It teaches us once again that the church is an act of God. The apostles can do absolutely nothing in and of themselves. All they can do is wait. The apostles can only wait for the gift of God the Spirit promised by God the Father. And it was a gift that it could only be given after God the Son had dealt with sin. If the church was a vessel, that vessel needed to be cleansed before it could be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He's holy after all. He cannot indwell an unclean vessel. And so they had to wait for the gift that the Father had promised, the gift of the Spirit that could only come through the cleansing work of God the Son. Without the gift of the Spirit, those apostles were nothing but an empty vessel. They were just jars of clay. All they could do was wait. So what have we been saying? To prepare for the church, Jesus chose, Jesus acted, Jesus taught, Jesus suffered, Jesus rose, and Jesus commanded. I think it's fair to say the church is an act of God. But by some miracle of grace, God works through ordinary people. And so maybe the most appropriate title for this book of the Bible might be this, The Acts of God Through His Apostles. Maybe that's what it should be called. But even if we called it that, we must never ever lose sight of the fact that the apostles were mere instruments. They were just empty vessels, clay jars. The church is an act of God. That is a profound and powerful reality. And one that we seldom grasp in all of its fullness. 
What does it mean for us? As a local church. What does it mean that the church is an act of God? So much, but at least these three things. We'll start with these three. First, humility. In many ways, the church is always waiting for God to act. Always. When Martin was rector, he, would, he had this custom. We would always gather in his office to pray before the Sunday services. And 99 times out of 100, his prayer would involve a plea to the Holy Spirit to be at work in our midst. To open blind, heart, to open blind eyes. To soften hard hearts. And to raise those who are spiritually dead to life. And it was such a wonderful example. Because it's precisely the right prayer, isn't it? If the church is an act of God, what else should we be praying? The church is an act of God. We are utterly dependent on Him. And that should humble us. The moment we become prideful and independent, the moment we begin to trust in our own ingenuity and ability and strategy and plans and gifting and resources, the moment that happens, we're building on sand. And quite honestly, we would do better to sell this campus to Kiro and just be done with it. One sure test of whether we're grasping all of this, whether we're grasping that the church is an act of God, is our prayer life. Prayer is probably the number one expression of our dependence and our humility before the Lord. Of course we can abuse it. Of course we can. But in its purest form, it's the number one expression of dependence and humility on the Lord, before the Lord. So here's the awkward question. What does your prayer life look like? What does our prayer life as a local church look like? Because that's the measure of our humility before the Lord. That's the measure of the extent to which we have truly grasped that the church is an act of God. And if we truly believe that the church is an act of God, or whether we're just saying it because it's the right kind of thing to say, we might be saying it, but functionally in our lives we can often operate off another definition of church. One of the definitions I gave at the top the church is some sort of social enterprise. It's where I get my social needs met, or where I get to show off my moral CV, or whatever, whatever it is we make the church out to be when we lose sight of the fact that it's an act of God. The more we grasp that the church is an act of God, the more it will humble us, the more we will express that in prayer. Secondly, love. When you reflect on what God did to prepare for the church, when you reflect on what the Father did through the Son to open the way for the Spirit so that the church could be born, you have to love the church. When it lands on you, dawns on you, how much God loved the church, you have to love the church. When you think about how precious the church is, that it cost the blood of Christ you begin to see the heart of God for the church, and you have to love the church. Now, I'm not talking, when I talk about love here, I'm not talking about sentiment. 
I'm not saying we ignore the obvious flaws and faults and problems in the church, and there are many. I'm not saying that we pretend that it's some sort of society of people glowing with holiness. That's not what God did. God did not pretend. We know that when we look at the cross. He did not pretend. He sees the ugly parts of the church clearer and fuller and deeper than any of us would ever want to. And yet he still loves her. He still died for her. So if you think of a marriage, the love we're talking about is not the pixie dust of newlyweds or honeymooners. This is the love of those who've been married for 50 years. The pixie dust is long gone. The honeymoon photos they lost decades ago. You've seen each other at your absolute worst. This is a love that survives and overcomes and surpasses all of that. It is infinitely deeper than the pixie dust of the initial attraction and excitement. It is deeper precisely because of the flaws. Not in spite of them. True love is not because of a person's worthiness. Ever. True love loves that person, loves that church in all of their unworthiness. William Shakespeare wrote about this kind of love in one of his sonnets. Uh, the English is old, so it might help you to know that bark means ship. I had to look that up. So here we go. Love is not love, which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark, whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with brief hours and weeks, but bears it out, even to the edge of doom. Shakespeare's writing about love that endures in the lifelong union of marriage. But even that enduring love, the, the kind of enduring love that we see in 50 years of marriage, even that, as rich and profound as it is, it's just the faintest echo of the love that Christ has for his bride, the church. He knows the ugliness of the church. He hung on the cross for the ugliness of the church. But he loves her. He loves her. We often sing it. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Christ loves the church as he finds her. But he loves her enough, and please hear this, he loves her enough not to leave her as he finds her. His love for us changes us, beautifies us. He beautifies his bride through his love. It moves us to change and transform and his love for the church should move us to love the church in the same way. This is not, as we've been saying, this is not a love that denies the ugliness that we sometimes find in the church. But in a strange way, when the church is weak and sick, we should love it all the more because God does. 
And our love for the church should be seen in our actions, in the same way that God's love for the church is seen in his actions. So again, here's the awkward question. How are you loving and serving the church? And by that I mean the people, by the way. Sometimes we think, oh, church would be so wonderful without the people. (laughs) Just me and my favorite hymn. How are you loving and serving the church? Do you make sacrifices to defend, to protect, to build and beautify the church? Because God does. And the more we comprehend his love for the church, the more we will be moved by that same love to love the church in the way that he loves the church. The church is an act of God. For us, that means humility and it means love. And finally, it also means zeal. Missionary zeal. A heart for the lost. It's just worth us remembering that God created the church out of nothing. The apostles were empty vessels. Jesus didn't walk around gathering all the good people into some society of holy men that he then called the church. No, he took broken, sinful, rebellious people like you and me and made us into something entirely new. He made them, the broken, sinful, rebellious people of that first generation, he made them into his apostles. Men devoted to God and devoted to his church by an act of God. By a demonstration of God's love in the person of his son, in the power of his spirit. And that tells us that at one level, if we think about that, it tells us that at least one level, the church exists for those outside the church. When we see what God did to rescue those outside the church, his zeal, his passion, how far he went to find the lost sheep, shouldn't that motivate us towards the same zeal? Especially when we remember we were those lost sheep. The church is an act of God. That should move us to humility before God, love for those in the church, and missionary zeal, zeal, passion for those outside the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you've done through your Son in the power of your Spirit to make the church possible. Help us as a local church to see ourselves as an act of God. Help us to live out of utter dependence and total humility. Help us to love the church as you love it. Help us to love the lost as you love the lost. Father, we pray that our church would always and everywhere remain an act of God. Work in us, work through us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.